Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we get tips and tricks of 25 of the world's best brewers straight into your dirty little brewing hands. And in just a few months, you'll be able to check out our new book, Simple Homebrewing. Yeah, coming this spring from Brewers Publications. Look for it. Buy it. Pay for our funds. <laughs> now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. And on today's episode, well, we're going to do some recaps. You know, the last episode, of course, was a massive recap. But this time, what we're going to do is we're going to go through some of our usual stuff. Our feedback, our news, our announcements, what's happening in the beer world, things that will impact you. A couple of things to understand in the library so you can read and keep your brain growing. And then when we're in the brewery, well, it's all brewery today because today it's going to be all about Hoppin' Brew School. That's right, man. It was a fun time and I'm going to fill you in on what I found there. And then, of course, we'll give you some questions and some answers. We'll do a quick tip and something other than beer because life needs more than just beer. Wow, really? Really. When did that happen? About three days ago. Okay, great. Then I I just missed it. Yep. So, that's our episode. It's going to be packed. So, uh, stick around, and we'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Home Brewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world. Providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Thank you so much for sticking around. We got a few announcements before we get going here, and the first one is that there's a new episode of The Brew Files Out, episode 44, called A Crummy Stout, and it's all about award-winning pastry stout. Yeah, I got a chance to sit down at one of my favorite places to have a beer, The Stuffed Sandwich, and sat down with Mike Hill and Brandon Prezavento, and we sat outside on the patio in the lovely Southern California afternoon and drank some wonderful pastry stout that Mike had made. 
basically his beer called Cruise Crumbs, which was a pastry straddle, like 10% alcohol that's designed to taste like a cinnamon pecan coffee cake. And it talked through the whole pastry stout phenomenon. So lots of good information, including part of the quick tip that's going to be coming up later in the episode. And of course, we're going to be traveling here shortly. Australia, we're soon going to be in you. So... <laughs> And we're going to start our, our trip to Australia here in the end of October in Melbourne, where we're going to be appearing at the Australian National Homebrewers Conference in its 10th year since its founding. And that's going to be on October 25th to October 27th. You can buy tickets at www.anhc.com.au. And you can come hear us, and we'll be doing a, a live podcast, some experiment results, you know, our usual shenanigans. But, of course, if you're not really wanting to hear us, you've also got other fine folks out there like Jay Goodwin of The Sour Hour and Rare Barrel, Chris White, Peter Simons, and a whole bunch of others. And that's not just it. Post-conference, Danny and I are going to be taking a small trip. We're going to be driving up the coast from Melbourne to Sydney. Yeah, I was just, I was just corrected on that. I had said down the coast to somebody, and it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, you forget things flip. That's right. <laughs> so we're going to be driving up the coast, and if you have any uh, suggestions on things we should do between Melbourne and Sydney, uh, please let us know. Or if you just want to come meet us in Sydney, we're going to be doing an event on October 30th in Sydney at Batch Brewing Company. So it's Tuesday the 30th at 8 p.m., and tickets are on sale at an event link that we're going to put in the show notes because – it's kind of intimidating to read. <laughs> That's right. Come and see us. And uh, we want to thank the Australian National Homebrewers Conference for bringing us over so we can do all this other fun stuff while we're there. Uh, Drew and I will each be doing a separate seminar, and then we'll be doing one together uh, on the difficult art of simplicity. So uh, if you're in Australia and you're a homebrewer, you need to be at the Australian National Homebrewer Conference October 25th through 27th. And after that, we'll be traveling again. I'm heading to uh, Asheville, North Carolina, March 22nd and 23rd for the Brew Your Own Boot Camp there. Marshall Schott from Brewlosophy and I will be doing a workshop together on homebrew experimentation, how to set up your own experiments, how to evaluate them, um, what to trust, what not to trust, and probably don't trust us. If you're going to the boot camp, when you sign up at byobootcamp.com, Please mention experimental brewing in the checkout comments. I'm just wondering, is there a corollary to, you know, the don't trust anybody over 30? You know, is it like don't trust anybody who's been brewing for more than 10 years? <laughs> don't trust anybody who tries to tell you how to brew. There you go. And while Denny's over there in Nashville, I'll actually be over in Dallas. And I'll be at the speaking at the Blue Bonnet Brew Off. So come on over to Dallas and watch me do my thing. And also help take part in one of the largest homebrew competitions in the country. And we hope that we'll see you at one place or the other. And if you can figure out how to see both of us in that same weekend, uh, I'm sure there's a Nobel Prize waiting for you figuring out how to clone yourself. <laughs> yeah, really. Don't forget, you can not only come see us, but you can also support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging our buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Our charitable cause for right now is Nowzad. They're an organization that started in Afghanistan to help the soldiers there with the uh, dogs they'd found, take care of them, bring them home, and they've expanded way past that now, but they're still doing a lot of great things for veterans and dogs. That's good stuff, people. So please go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and kick us a buck or two that we can pass along to them. There we go. And now it's time for, for Feedback. feedback. 
And we got two pieces of feedback from various internet forums this week, both about the pastry stout episode. Uh, Reddit user Probabilistic World says, A couple of times you refer to pastry stout as a growing trend, new fad, the hot new thing, etc. But this is literally the second time I've ever heard anything about them. And the first I'd heard was just some offhand comment the other day. I thought this was maybe just a California thing until you mentioned a Florida brewery doing one. That would be angry cheer. I don't live in a craft beer desert, and I'm not a hermit who never goes out to bars. So what's up? Is this a regional thing? Does it go by other names? And probabilistic world, it does go by other names, but I mean, really, the whole pastry style thing, it seems to be more often applied as a pejorative than an actual style, but really, it just comes down to large imperial stouts with lots of funny flavors to them that make you think of something dessert-like. So that is the thing. It's not just a California thing. It is around the nation now, and it is sort of a hot little trend in terms of people doing a lot of beer trading, so right up there with the hazies. And uh, by the way, no matter what you think of pastry stouts, Angry Chair makes pretty good beer, so they make a really awesome porter. <laughs> and then our other piece of feedback comes from Instagram from Perzel Brewing, who said, finished the episode today, and damn it, I want to brew a pastry stout now. It's almost well, it's almost like we planned that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, go right ahead, man. Uh, you've got the info now after that episode, so if that's the kind of beer you want to make, you can now go for it. Yep. And now to some of our listeners' favorite segments, and probably my least favorite segment. It's time for us to go visit the Correctional Department of Corrections with a correction from last episode. Yes, once again. And so, to begin this exercise in mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, I have a couple comments from uh, both listeners, uh, Clay Littleton and James. They both got a mistake I made in the episode about pumps. Uh, in Brew Files 44, Mike had described how he uses a diaphragm pump to do recirculation, and then I basically crossed my pump types over in my head and gave a description of what is actually a peristolic pump instead of a diaphragm pump. And the difference is, is that a diaphragm pump literally uses a diaphragm and basically pushing on the diaphragm to push beer through a chamber. And the idea is it's supposed to be very gentle and, and you know, it works, but there's lots of nooks and crannies in there. It's not exactly the world's most sanitary pump. That would be a peristolic pump, which is what I actually described in the episode, which is essentially a piece of tubing that runs through a chamber that has rollers that squeeze and pinch the tubing and use it to kind of push bubbles along. And so the idea with a peristolic pump is that all you have to do is keep that sanitary line sanitary and everything else is safe, no machinery in contact with the liquid. So there you go. Diaphragm pump, completely different than a peristolic pump, and I should know better. But in my defense, we were sitting outside drinking pastry stuff. Okay, I think maybe it's uh, time we go get a beer, huh? I agree. All right, man. Please stick around. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be over in the pub talking about the beer life. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaki you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Savor some of Yeast's exclusive Belgian strains with the Belhisha Zomer private collection this summer. 
back by popular demand, the Forbidden Fruit, Trappist-style blend, and the Canadian-Belgian ale strains encompass the entire spectrum of yeast properties and are distinguished by their coveted ester and phenolic profiles. Take advantage of these strains to brew a full range of Belgian styles, from traditional everyday drinking to the bigger and more complex. The versatility of this collection is perfect for savoring all summer long. These strains are available July through September at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. We're back, and we are here sitting in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever the heck you are. And we are having a couple beers. Uh, what are you drinking today, Drew? I'm drinking a John Brown Brown Ale. Say that five times fast. Yeah, really? I was just thinking that. From Liberation Brewing Company down in Long Beach, uh, who will be featured in an upcoming episode. And this is you know just your classical throwback American brown ale. Uh, with some modern twist to it because it's, you know, using carafe in there instead of, you know, sort of chocolate malt. But, but all the hopping is things like Nugget, CTZ, Simcoe, and Cascade. So it's just about as classical an American brown as you can get. Nice beer, beautiful drinker. More people need to make brown ales. Wow, you know what? That hop, uh, that hop schedule is a lot like what I do for my American brown, too. So right on. I'm going to try some of that stuff. Well, I just got back from Yakima, and one of the things I look forward to every year when I go up there is going to the Bale Breaker Brewery. They uh, are this great brewery sitting in the middle of a hop field, and uh, as you can imagine, their beers are pretty hop-forward. They had a new one this year that I hadn't seen before, and it became one of my immediate favorites. It is the Leota May IPA. I like it, number one, because it's kind of a lighter-bodied IPA and lower alcohol, only 6.2%, but it is 50 IBUs. They hop it with Equinot and Mosaic, and man, while I have not been a fan of either one of those hops in the past, these guys at Bailbreaker do it right, and there is just a wonderful, wonderful hop flavor and aroma to this beer. I don't know if they're using the cryo hops in it, but I wouldn't be surprised if they do. Uh, like I said, uh, Bailbreaker sits in the middle of a hop farm. The owners of the hop farm are also uh, one of the families that are, you know, one of the owners of uh, Yakima Chief, and it's their son and daughter who started this brewery right in the middle of the hop field there on the hop farm. Kind of feels a little bit like a case of vertical integration yeah very much so i love everything they make and it's a beautiful location uh should you happen to be in yakima you would be doing yourself a disservice not to stop by bail break i was gonna say in the past you've talked about top cutters being one of your favorite uh, ipas right that's right. Top the top cutter is a great IPA, and I brought home a case of that. But Leota May has uh, supplanted it as my favorite of their beers. Well, there you go. Then sounds like it's time for something to you know, you know drink. 
Give me some. <laughs> Send me some. Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, I'm I'm holding some ransom here for you. <laughs> well, I'll I'll make sure to pay the toll. <laughs> All right, we'll see. Yeah. All right, well, why don't we get down to business? Because I, we've got some things happening in the brewery world, and for once, we're not going to talk about somebody's being bought or sold or breweries, you know, selling out or that sort of thing. Because we we could, but we're not going to. And our very first story is actually about the malt business and kind of a possible sale there. So. Cargill, who is one of the largest uh, agricultural companies out there. I mean, they, they have their fingers in, well, just about anything agricultural. Yeah, right. And they are actually supposedly exploring, possibly spinning off the Cargill malt unit you know, for about $1 billion. Or at least that's what the business is uh, valued at. And, I mean, they have malting operations in like 10 different countries and they do things under Cargill malt, Joe white malt, Prairie malt, and a whole bunch of other brands. And it just kind of is a little weird, but it seems that this is some effect of what people are terming, at least in the business world is brewery consolidation because all the mega brewers are combining. And that's where everybody, even these companies focus their sales on, even though we have 6,000 breweries, you know, because all those operations are combining, you know, they feel like there's a narrower, narrow market to sell to. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that is, I mean, they don't just feel like it. That's the way it really is. Um, so I'm really going to be interested to see where this goes. If they decide they just want to give it up or if they uh, want to uh, sell it off and let somebody else deal with it. Because Cargill has been a big, big player in the malt biz for many, many years. Well, I mean, they're a big player in all sorts of stuff. Uh, the, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, the Miller plant that's down the road from me. They regularly have tanker cars full of Cargill corn syrup coming. You know, sure, so, yeah. Hey, you name it. Yeah, Cargill is all over the uh, the food business. Yep. And then on other news also, you know, we've talked about in the past how we both feel very strongly that both home brewing and craft brewing have sort of a diversity problem. You know, take a look around you. You know, most craft beer bars that you're going to go to, you're going to see that the hobby and the pursuit and passion are very largely uh, white folk. You know, people like me who are, you know, college educated, married, and, you know, have technical degrees and uh, slight bellies and beards. <laughs> um, and so just in the news was uh, not too long ago this summer, a pair of uh, comedians and podcasters over in, uh, in Pittsburgh – uh, Dave Bracey and Mike Potter actually put on a brand new beer festival that they called Fresh Fest. And the whole point of Fresh Fest was to try and make a festival that was more oriented along the idea of black brewers, uh, black culture, you know, more and encourage more participation from people of color in the world. So I thought this was rather interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's great, man. Uh, I'm going to be real interested to see where it goes and if people take notice of it and uh, if it if it leads to anything else. But at the very least, it's a start and it's a great start. Yeah, and these guys are these guys were talking some interesting stuff about you know both like how the major beer companies uh, tend to market and and what products they tend to market to different segments and you know how much of that is cultural and how much of that is, you know, sort of driving people away from, you know, ever trying other options. And so to me, it was, it was really interesting to see. And uh, hopefully we can see some more interesting discussions around topics like this. Yeah, man, I I, I would like to see that, Uh, you know, we're, we're all for anything that uh, contributes to diversity in craft beer, whether it's, uh, you know, race or gender or whatever. Uh, 
craft beers for everybody, and we need to make an effort to make sure everybody's involved. Well, and I mean, go back and listen to the interview that I did with the SoCal Seven Sorrows uh, a few episodes back. And to me, one of the, the more fascinating things about that was, I mean, that's a, a Latino uh, homebrew club. But just going into that community and seeing that there are a whole different set of flavor profiles and experiences being drawn from that were then reflected in the beers that were available, you know, the homebrew tasting. So to me, I, if nothing else, that's another reason to be curious to explore, to see what different ideas people have. Yeah, really. And <laughs> talking about different flavor experiences, mm. man, um, the researchers have just discovered the oldest direct evidence of beer in Mesopotamia. They uh, discovered uh, beer drinking cups that still had some residue in them um, that were nearly 2,500 years old. Now, doesn't it seem like a few years ago there was something like this, like with dogfish head or something like that, too? Well, I mean, dogfish head's been playing around in this space for a long period of time, but all that stuff has been basically out of uh, pottery. Uh, that right. you know was like fermentation or storage jars. So this was basically doing direct field analysis on clay cups that they found in northern Iraq. So like one of the problems with the stuff that's been done by you know Dr. Patrick McGovern, uh, who has been working with Dogfish Head for years, is a lot of that's done on samples that could have been potentially contaminated, you know, in the way they were handled out in the field and moved back to the museum. This work was actually being done uh, right there in the field as the cups were being pulled out to try and really preserve and make sure that there was no you know, sort of cross-contamination. So it was really, really kind of cool. And I mean, this is, I mean, this is still younger than the earliest evidence that we have for brewing, which is still about like late 4th millennium BC. So it was really just kind of cool where all this stuff was happening. These were, you know, Mesopotamian cups, cassite origins of... of yeah, you know, it was just really sort of nifty to see them actually pull it out and talking about how it relates to the things that they do know, you know, basically, yeah, how many different types of beers there were, like the golden and red and dark ales and whatnot, and, you know, really trying to figure out, okay, what could possibly be in these cups? So really interesting article in the Smithsonian. Go and read it. Yeah, what I like, too, there's a, a quote here from Claudia Glatz, one of the researchers, who says, beer is a quintessential Mesopotamian foodstuff. Everyone drank it, but it also has social significance in ritual practices. It really defines Mesopotamian identities in many ways. That's pretty cool, man. Mesopotamians are defined by the beer they drank. Beer. Is there nothing that you can't do? <laughs> That's right. Unless you can't get the beer because of climate change, huh? And yeah, and so this is kind of some interesting news where uh, beer love and science and some of the stuff about climate change has come together. We're uh, talking about an article in Beer City, Brussels, that about the possible risk to lambic production from climate change and what some scientists were doing to actually start studying it. And so really interesting, they, these two uh, these two scientists worked with uh, Jean Van Roy over at Cantillon to start doing temperature measurements and to understand exactly what it was. Because it turns out lambic production is done in sort of very narrow windows in terms of temperature, right? You know, when it can be done. And they've already seen a shrinking of the time period in which they could actually do the brewing because of the natural cooling to get down low enough and also make sure that the right microbes are operating at the right times. So it used to be that the span of time that they could brew was about 150 days. It's now down to 120 and they're also now experiencing high enough temperatures during the summer above 25 degrees Celsius that 
they actually have to make sure they pull the three-year-old lambic, which Sean Van Roy says is the most delicate and, and most damageable, from the top rafters where it always used to be down into the basement, into the cellar. So really odd things here. You know, the, a lot of science is going on. They're, they're starting to do year-to-year measurements to try and see, you know, what could possibly be done or what might have to be done in order to preserve the Lambic tradition. Because one of the things that Jean Van Roy is very adamant about is he does not ever want to introduce artificial cooling, at least not until he has to. Yeah, right. He says in 20, 30, or 40 years, if they don't have any other options, then they'll do it because they don't have any other options. But, you know, it's like, just one more sign that things are getting weird out there. Yeah, and of course they do talk about the fact that like in 1901, uh, or they, they're measuring temperatures all the way back to 1901 to understand this, and there have been periods of time, I think it was in the late 40s post-World War II, where the temperatures were actually too cold for a while to be able to do the brewing. And now we are definitely on an upswing to a point where it's not looking good, but guys. Yeah, really. It's already hard enough for me to get Cantillon. Dang it. <laughs> And while we're in Belgium, there's been like a a real big deal because for the first time in history, the Belgian Brewers Federation has a woman director, which uh, is way cool. And it's about time, huh? Yeah. And so this is the foundation that represents basically the majority of Belgian brewers. Uh, There are a couple of other different uh, guilds out there, but this one is one that does a lot of uh, Belgian beer work. And... I thought what was interesting was not only, okay, you know, hey, look, a woman setting it up. But the one that made me kind of cock an eyebrow was the fact that she has no beer experience. All of her work in the past has been all about uh, different sort of large foundations, which is actually something that the chairman of the organization actually says he felt was more important. And he said, basically, her experience with various federations is important. A federation is not a company. We are constantly in touch with a variety of stakeholders. And she has no experience in the beer world, can even be seen as a plus point. She starts with a clean slate and no links to any particular brewer. Apart from anything else, she has shown herself in the past to be a quick learner. And the whole idea is basically be able to get in there and do a lot of work across multiple groups of people without the, you know, the weight of history, shall we say. Yeah, man, I think it's great. Uh, you don't need to be a beer person to know how to market beer from the sales side, you know? So that's that's just perfect. Or sometimes even just how to wrangle the troops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. All right, I'm done with my beer. I need to read something. You know what? I'm going to finish up the rest of this, and we'll get out of here and head over to the library. How does that sound? Okay. <laughs> He's so agreeable today. I love it. Please stick around. We're going to take a quick break and move over to the library where we're going to be talking about dry hop creep. And that's not uh, somebody like Drew who dry hops their beer. We'll be right back. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes, including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal-winning Goza. Right now, Brewer's Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to brewerspublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at brewerspublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
the Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. We're back and we're here in the library with these big stacks of books around us. It it smells musty. That's just you. You need to take a shower. Oh, God damn it. You're right. Uh, well, and to, since today is going to be all about hops, we figured there was uh, no better time than to revisit a subject that we've talked about before on Australian website, uh, Rockstar Brewer Academy. Rockstar. They uh, had an article that they just published all about uh, dry hop creep and how it can cause diastole in beer and, well, really how to minimize that risk. It, it's very interesting, and uh, it kind of ties in with a story we did, what, a year or two ago about uh, the diastase that can be in hops? Yeah, we reviewed some of this uh, about a year ago, but it's always worthwhile to revisit because, of course, we're, you know, we're talking about a world in which dry hops are more important than they've ever been before. But yeah, it effectively comes down to, well, a little bit of what we talked about then, but also a little bit of what we've been talking about recently with the Brute IPAs and also yeast health and cleanup. And essentially, yeah, dry hopping can introduce diastatic enzymes into your finished beer. And so as a refresher course, a diastatic enzyme is something that will convert you know, longer sugars and starches into simpler sugars, which are things that yeast are very happy to eat. You know, they won't necessarily uh, eat the, the later stuff. And this has been a well-known phenomenon ooh, over 100 years, you know, and it's been written up, but it kind of because of the loss of dry hopping for a while, I think a lot of people forgot about it. But, you know, hops do contain fermentables. They do have sometimes wild yeast on them, but that's a little bit of a lesser concern, I think, for most of us. And so, of course, most importantly, though, is that the hops contain diastase, which as enzymes will act to break those longer chain sugars, those more complex sugars, the one that yeast can't touch, into simpler sugars over time that the yeast can. So how does this end up producing diacetyl? Well, remember what we talked about before, that basically fermentation always produces diacetyl. It's just a byproduct of the whole cycle. Now, normally what happens is when the yeast are in good health and have plenty of glycogen and plenty of energy, they'll go pick up that diacetyl component and then turn around and turn it into compounds that we can't taste, or at least we can't taste very well. Well, when this happens in the bottle or the keg, the yeast have already had most of their energy depleted, and there's not a lot of yeast in there, at least if you're following sort of good practices. So the diacetyl has nowhere to go. It just hangs around. <laughs> yeah, and because the beer is stored cold, there's obviously no more uh, fermentation that's happening to uh – get the yeast activated to consume that well, diacetyl. Well, at least less, already, less fermentation. 
Yeah, right. Um, the three key metrics at play, it says in the article, are temperature, hop enzymes are active from around uh, 34 to 36 Fahrenheit up to about 140 Fahrenheit. So even if you're refrigerating your beer, those enzymes are still going to be active. Uh, hop enzymes are most active at a pH of around 4.0 to 5. So that's right in the area where uh, finished beer ends up. And... Uh, Naturally, it takes yeast to consume these newly formed sugars. They do talk about some things you can do to reduce the risk of diacetyl, and I have a couple more to add to it. Mm -hmm. Number one is you can remove all the yeast from your beer, either by filtering or centrifuging, because if there's no yeast, then it can't act on the uh, sugars that are formed by the diastase and the hops. However, let's, let's face it, nobody's produced a home-grade centrifuge just yet. No, well, and let's face it also, this article is not aimed at home brewers. It's aimed at commercial brewers. But yeah, so if, if you're worried about this on the homebrew level, uh, then you need to, uh, really pay attention to, uh, have, how much yeast is in your beer. Pasteurization can, of course, kill the yeast. Coarse filtration to remove the hop particles, but not, uh, the yeast. You can dry hop during a diacetyl rest so that that will, uh, consume any, uh, diacetyl formed by the hops. The more you dry hop, the higher concentration of the enzyme that can potentially damage your beer. And they also talk about measuring and reducing dissolved oxygen pickup. Dissolved oxygen has long been cited as a precursor to diacetyl and finished beer. Well, and I think those last four are the ones that are the most pro- uh, practical to homebrewers. Now, we may not be able to do, or most of us may not be able to do, coarse filtration, but, you know, that's an argument in favor of having your hops in a bag, you know, because the idea here is it's the leaf material. Yeah. Um, now, and, and let, first of all, let's keep in mind that this only happens on very heavily dry hopped beers. I believe that I heard, and I'll, I'll verify this and uh, see if I can back it up, but um, this only happens if you use more than five pounds of dry hops per barrel of beer. So you got to you got to get the hop rate up there pretty pretty high. The other thing to keep in mind is that the sugars that get broken down by the diastase uh, in the hops come from the bract portion of the hops. The the leafy vegetal part is where these sugars reside. So one way around this is to use cryo hops because there's none of that in the cryo hops to dry hop with. So, you know, that's that's a possibility also. And, I mean, you can also do what, what they said here, dry hop during the diacetyl rest. But, of course, that puts you, you know, in sort of a very narrow window in which you're going to dry hop. I think the interesting one is actually to say, hey, you know, you don't always have to throw all the hops into all the beer. Yeah, right. Well, you know what? And I kind of, I've always liked getting my beer off the uh, yeast before I dry hop. Admittedly, there's still going to be some in there, but uh, there'll be less. Right. But it, I think the point of the article and, and some of what you just said there, you know, was that like point, uh, you know, like point eight pounds or something per gallon or per five gallon batch uh, yeah. of dry hop. Um, yeah, if you're exceeding that, you don't have to necessarily go that high because you have diminishing returns in terms of the amount of oil that you're going to get into the beer, the amount of aroma impact that you're going to have in the beer. So sometimes maybe just back off a little. Yeah, but you know what? It's not uncommon to see homebrewers out there putting in five, six, eight ounces of dry hop, something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely getting you up into that area. Yep. So, uh, you know, if you're going to be doing that and you're concerned, just 
take all these uh, all these precautions uh, in mind, and uh, we'll, we'll put up a link to this article so you guys can see it for yourself because it's less uh, confusing than us trying to explain it. Well, and I think the other takeaway is, hey, more uh, more argument for the idea of keg purging. Yeah, definitely so. Keg purging is a good thing, uh, you know. And uh, again, dry hopping with cryo hops I found to be very effective, and that seems like that would uh, help avoid a lot of this. Well, you know what? I think this is enough talking about hops. Why don't we go talk some more about hops? Yeah, I think so. Uh, because when you talk about hops, you always need to talk more about hops, right? Indeed. Let's hop to it. All right. We're going to hop over to the brewery and talk about hop and brew school. Stick around. We'll be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. So it's been a whole couple of minutes since we've talked about hops, and I feel like we have to talk some more about hops, and there's no better way to talk about hops than to talk about YCH's Hop and Brew School, uh, where Denny just was, and Denny, you had... Well, you had too much of a good time, so why don't you tell us? You know, this is my fifth year there, and every year it just gets better and better. Uh, Yakima Chief, formerly YCH, runs this uh, great, great program every year during hop harvest. Uh, they have fantastic speakers for the first half of the day, and in the second half of the day, you get to go out and tour hop farms and hop processing facilities. They run two sessions, uh, one for... Um, commercial brewers and then another one for home brewers and distributors a lot of the seminars are repeated so even if you go to the home brewer uh, session you still get a lot of the great information uh, that the commercial brewers got but before we get into everything that i learned there and i have like this whole list of like hot facts to spew out uh, I sat down with uh, the CEO of Yakima Chief, Mike Gettle, and the Chief Supply Chain Officer, Steve Carpenter. Uh, Chief Supply Chain Officer means he's the guy that makes sure that uh, brewers get the hops that they need. Steve is also uh, one of the families that grows hops and owns uh, Yakima Chief. He's been with them for 36 years, and I heard at one point during one of these seminars that uh, his family started growing hops in the Yakima Valley before 1900. So uh, they've been around. They know their stuff. So grab yourself a beer unless you happen to be driving. Kick back and listen to this great chat that I had with Mike Gettle and Steve Carpenter of Yakima Chief Hops. Hey, everybody. This is Denny, and I am sitting here in beautiful Yakima, Washington, in a conference room at Yakima Chief Hops. And I've got Steve Carpenter, the Chief Supply Chain Officer of Yakima Chief, and Mike Gettle, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, Yakima Chief, here with me today. Thanks, guys. Good to be here, Thank Danny. you, Denny. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it worked out well. I just got to talk on your podcast 
podcast, and now you get to talk on ours. So, Great. We're all broke in and ready to go. We're all about trading beer, so that's we're right. good. That's right, and we've already had a beer or two, <laughs> so we're loosened up and ready to do this. So um, let's start with the story of Yakima Chief. And, Steve, I'm going to let you do that because you did so well yesterday. Uh, why don't you just... Tell everybody what it's all about, where it came from, what's happened. Yeah. You know, we got our start really back in uh, the fall of 1988, so almost 30 years ago. And uh, it was kind of a, a little bit of a chaotic time in the hop industry here. Uh, we were coming off our second antitrust suit, both which were... <laughs> Uh, settled out of court, so there wasn't a lot of trust in the industry. Anheuser-Busch had decided to uh, direct contract with growers, and that was the first brewer that really had the interest of doing that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there was a lot of us that uh, wanted a little bit of independence from the traditional merchant network at the time who took a lot of those contracts. And uh, as a result, we started growing a lot of Willamette's, and U.S. Tetanangs, uh, there was Cascades to be grown for Anheuser-Busch. There were two varieties you never hear of anymore, one Aquila and one Banner. Those hmm. were varieties bred uh, specifically for Anheuser-Busch that we actually grew on our farm. And uh, as a result, um, the dealers at the time said, you know what, you're, you're dealing directly with the brewers now. You really don't need us. So our alpha market's kind of dried up. <laughs> So a group of us got together with Chuck Zimmerman, who uh, was the CEO at Hop Union USA. Mm -hmm. Not the Hop Union we know and love, but uh, one owned by uh, a German group headed up by Johannes Reiser. And uh, he left and went to work as a consultant for Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company. They had a brewer division, and they were looking for a source of alpha hops. So... Our markets for alpha hops uh, kind of dried up a little bit because of uh, our relationship with Anheuser-Busch. So we sat down with the powers that be and with Chuck, uh, who's also a world-renowned hop breeder, uh, developed a lot of the uh, public varieties that we still use. He had a hand in developing Cascade, Chinook, Centennial, uh, and a few others. And uh, so we put together... Uh, a little strategic alliance with Pfizer, and that grew from uh, way beyond our ability. And when I say ours, my family, the Carpenter family, the Peralt family, and the Smith family were the three that originally got together. Uh, As part of Chuck's severance agreement, he was able to negotiate the purchase of the old Sunny Hops warehouse in Sunnyside. Mm -hmm. So our agreement with Pfizer, they did all the extraction and the sales and marketing we did the growing of the hops and the storing and pelletizing. And for that, every sale, we got 70%. They got 30%. This wonderfully transparent system where, you know, there were no secrets. <laughs> right. And uh, so that grew to about uh, from 1988 to 1996 to about 6 million pounds. And we couldn't source it all for the three of us. So right. we invited uh, some of the... Uh, uh, today's Yakima chief owners, the Sove family, the Gasling family, uh, the Gamash family, who's no longer part of our ownership, but they were part, um, uh, the Deserol family, to help us source into this new transparent model for alpha hops. 
and uh, that grew. And then in 1997, Pfizer sold the brewery division to Coltor Food Science, and that sent a red flag up to us. Boy, if they can make that decision that quick in a boardroom, corporate boardroom, we need to own this extract plant. Mm-hmm. So we started through a negotiation process with Pfizer, uh, Coltor at the time, and uh, we're about that close to what we thought was due diligence and got a call from our friends at Barth Haas informing us that they had bought the extract plant in Sydney, Nebraska. So, but they were very cordial about it. Yes, we just bought this out from under you, but we would love for you guys to work with us. Well, we hadn't worked six or seven years to kind of get away from the old dealer network to go back to that old Mm -hmm. system. So we decided to build our own extract plant down in Sunnyside, uh, which we did, started in 1997 and finished in 1998, and that's where we formed the original Yakima Chief. And then in, uh, I think it was 2000, 2001, um, a group of growers... Uh, one common grower with the Yakima Chief, the Smith family, uh, got a group together along with Ralph Olson, and they bought from Barth at the time the Hop Union facility here that we're at right across the road. And uh, that business grew, tailored specifically to the craft market, uh, headed up by Ralph Olson and mm-hmm. Ralph Woodall. Ralph's still with us. Uh, he's got an office right across the way there. And... Uh, that business grew, and in 2006, we decided we have two grower-owned groups that have so much in common, a common vision, common way of doing business. Let's see if we can't put those together. So in 2006, we did the first what I would call quasi-merger uh, between Yakima Chief and Hop Union. Eight years later, it was working so well, we decided to bring both companies together. So in August in 2014, we created Yakima Chief Hop Union. And uh, the timing was good. Uh, the strength of the Yakima Chief organization was process and systems, and the, and the strength of the Hop Union was marketing and sales. And putting those two groups together just created a lot of synergy, uh, really fueled by our wonderful customers making hop-forward beers <laughs> using our, our hops. And uh, so now it's 2018. It's 30 years uh, from those uh, humble beginnings, and and here we are. You know, one of the things that I have always thought was exceptionally cool about you guys was that this is a company that's owned by the people who grow the hops, right? Yes. This is This is not just some faceless entity out there pushing hops out to brewers. How does that work? I mean, is that is it difficult? Well, we have uh, we have eleven grower owners. Mm-hmm. We have another forty one growers that are working with us, and we have a very transparent system where we sell the hops on behalf of all of the the farmers. And all of these farms are family farms. Uh, some of them we may have multiple members of the family that are part of a uh, corporate organization, but none none of them are what you would call private equity growers or private equity farmers. These are real family farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every one of them has been farming for a long period of time. Some hop farmers like Steve's family for six generations. Right. Some of them a little bit newer, maybe one generation or two generations. But what we do is we bring all the hops together. We go out and, and, and sell them to brewers around the world. 
We take our average sale price, we knock off our cost for that, and then we return the rest of that to the growers. And it's completely open and transparent whether they're an owner or not, everybody gets that same price back. And so to the extent the price goes up or down, the growers uh, have have kind of move along with that market. And so when times are good like they've been the last several years on it, the price back to the farmers have been quite high. And our, our, our returns back to the growers are in that 75 to 80% range. Uh, <laughs> that is so cool. Out, 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 of, out of the total prices. And that's, uh, you know, the... We, we hear from uh, others that, you know, some of the merchants are more in those mid-60s. And so we're able to return more back to the grower at a higher average price. And they, in turn, have been able to reinvest in those in those uh, facilities and the growing and then improve the quality. So it's been a nice virtuous cycle for us. Uh, but very transparent. We talk about this with all of the growers. We also have, and Steve is a big part of this, tremendous feedback from the brewers on what they like or dislike about the hops. We send all of that information back to the growers about um, their own individual quality on their farms, but also what's happening in the brewing community. And as you know, the the recipe turnover and change Mm -hmm. is is accelerating amongst all brewers, and people want to try different things. And so we have to be very flexible and, and adaptable to be able to get that information back to the growers so they can adjust their growing patterns and what hops they're looking at and that sort of thing and that's a real big part of what we communicate as well same thing on the alpha market which is the bittering part of the market Mm -hmm. as opposed to the aroma and that's more for macro breweries that part is more of a commodity part but to understand what's going on around the world we can kind of be that um that voice or that that window to the, what's happening there back to the growers to steve's point where in the in the past you might not have known what's going on around the world now we are very transparent about it we talk about it uh, with our with our growers again whether they're owners or not we treat all of the the, the farmers the hop farmers the same so you're you're a fairly new addition here mike correct what what's your background what what made you want to come here i grew up on a i grew up on a farm in minnesota uh corn soybeans and dairy cows oh man I, i'm from iowa i know that <laughs> stuff <laughs> so you know what you know it's hard work yeah. and farming any kind of farming is hard work and uh, i spent my career mostly in the grain trade and uh over over 20 years of that was in asia uh between singapore and china supply chains long supply chains uh, buying from farmers and shipping it overseas uh, in particular as the asian um, incomes grew but what what really attracted me to uh, the position here in yakima was the fact that it was very much grower owned and i still remember the single most important sentence i heard during the, the interview process was we're not hiring you or not looking for somebody for us we're looking for somebody for the next generation Cool. And they, they 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 meant it sincerely, and 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 it just permeates through the organization. And that starts really with uh, saying, we have this partnership with our brewers. And if you've seen our new logo, we've got the two interconnected circles, and that's connecting the growers with the brewers. Mm-hmm. And 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 every grower is very mindful that this is a symbiotic relationship with the with the brewers. You know, if we're making a good quality hop, they can make a good quality beer. Right. And if they can make a good quality beer, they're going to sell more of it, and then they can need more hops. <laughs> so it's a beautiful, virtuous cycle. But we're very mindful of that, and so there's so much focus for us on quality. You know, we start off every year saying our single most important objective is to keep our our, our team safe. Mm-hmm. You know, because of the people in the processing facilities. Our second one is to make sure we're maintaining and enhancing the quality of our hops. Right. And if we do those two things, everything else will follow. But that's what we start with. Great.
So, Steve, one of the things I've been hearing about this year a lot is YCR, which is Yakima Chief Ranches. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Would you talk about what that is and its relationship to Yakima Chief? Sure. So Yakima Chief Ranches, formerly known as Select Botanicals Group, is kind of the arm of the company that that does the uh, varietal development. Uh, So if you could look at the entire supply chain, we've got breeding, we've got what goes on at the farm, and there's a nice component that uh, we work jointly with Yakima Chief Ranches to achieve their footprints program. And what that is is just uh, we've got an army of interns that go into the yards, hop yards this time of the year, all through the growing season. They're looking for off types, they're looking for male plants, uh, and they're, they're keeping our varietals pure uh, all through mm-hmm. the system. We also have what we call the Green Chief Program, uh, which is a program geared around sustainability. Uh, we have uh, an annual, uh, not an annual meeting, but we have a monthly meeting among growers designed to give them a forum for collaboration, talk about best practices, talk about what they're doing to reduce their carbon footprint, their water footprint. And uh, that's a valuable piece. And that's not just for owners. That's for all of those uh, owners plus the other 45 or so growers that are growing hops for us. Mm-hmm. We want them to know as much as they can about what the brewers need to make great beer. And we want them executing on those uh, uh, strategies at the farm level. Uh, so it's, it's really a total comprehensive what we call the Yakima Chief Supply Chain. that we think we can offer that's a little bit different than what the competition can. So kind of tying in uh, with the green thing, uh, what's the the story on organic hops? Is that something that's being grown much? Is it getting more or less? What's the deal? It it is actually, and and we've just currently uh, worked out a deal with Organic Hops Northwest. I guess I can announce this to the public. (laughs) Uh, Nobody listens to this anyway, don't worry. (laughs) uh, To to really get back into that, it really aligns with our sustainability principles. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got good buy-in from all the folks that uh, have been delivering hops to that program. Uh, we see uh, growing markets, I, I would say flat to growing in North America, but the Europeans are really focused right. on European hops, especially up in Scandinavia. And uh, so we think there's some markets there, and uh, we think we can uh, help some brewers make some great beer using our organic supply chain. But we see uh, we see Michelob Ultras trying to do organic grain, and if they actually put any hops in that beer, <laughs> we would be happy to sell them some uh, hops for that as well. I have heard that they just like hold a hop cone in front of the kettle. <laughs> they just wave it across. If, it's if, a the sh- if the shadow falls on the kettle, that's good enough. <laughs> you know? um, uh. so, yeah, well, and the, the great thing, too, about you know organic growing is not just the finished product, but it's the impact that it has on the environment and sure. the land and future growth and right. hops you know yep. that's going to be that's going to be really great no it is and it's a big part of what we're trying to do in general is be more sustainable and kind of get back to that family farm and, and this is something not everybody appreciates i know you do danny but not everybody appreciates that 
most of the family farms and our hop growers too live right on the farms where yeah. they have the hops, right? So cool. And 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 their 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 waters right there, the air they breathe, the work they're doing is all related to the farm. And so they want to be as uh, sustainable and, and environmentally friendly as they possibly can because they're living it every day, right? You know. And so we have growers that are always mindful and trying to figure out how to reduce and and eliminate anything that might be harmful to the environment. And that's a big part of it. And organics is part of that leading. Uh, edge of saying how can you try to do some of this and make everything more sustainable it's there's a big project that we're involved in right now denny and it's it's uh it's a long ways from completion but uh within our culture of continuous improvement we Mm -hmm. think we're on the right track we just completed uh our first uh, life cycle assessment and external consultant to help us wow look looking at that entire supply chain and we had uh, a group of uh, three or four growers to be kind of a pilot group for us to look at the farming side that's really where the biggest uh, carbon and water input is we have some certainly we can do some things but we're looking at that comprehensive life cycle and figuring out ways to reduce our carbon and our water footprint. Well, we did a couple of things as Yakima Chief Hops as processing. We've added solar panels over the year. We've done a whole amount, large amount of uh, refrigeration retrofits, and we're now implementing uh, an extended uh, CO2 recovery system. We're already recovering 97%. We're trying to capture another two, two out of that last 3%, so we're really working hard on wow, this. Wow, that's great, guys. So when I was up here uh, a few years ago, we were doing like the, the growers' round table out at one of the farms and i asked a question if there was one variety of hop that they wish they didn't have to grow mm-hmm. unanimously everybody said centennial yeah. is that is that still the answer it's still a challenging one we, <laughs> we had last year our 2017 crop was our one good year out of 10 it seems <laughs> i better stock uh, up it, quick <laughs> it, it, it it hit and it's such a wonderful hop i wish we could uh um, you know, it's a relatively new hop for us, uh, and it's just so variable from year to year. Guys will pick a, a training date and to get that uh, hop on the string and get it headed up to the up the trellis, up the string. And uh, it's just so weather dependent that so many years we get a split bloom. And that split bloom, you've got that one early maturing cone, and you got a burr right next to it. And and trying to get optimum yield with that type of scenario is just a real challenge for our growers. Well, uh, you know, thank goodness that they're keeping up at it because yep. I know a lot of people, when I say that to them, go, no, 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 there's got to be Centennial. I've got to have a Centennial. <laughs> I've got one grower, I, get, I won't mention his name, I give him a bad time all the time because he, he's not picking right now. He, he's waiting. He'll start Sunday. And he's complaining. He says, gosh, all these guys are picking. He says, I can solve that problem for you. Plant some centennials for us. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) So uh, this is is for either one of you. What's new and exciting that you see coming down the pike here at Yakima Chief? I'll take a stab at it, and then you can add on, Steve. Sure. I I think for us, um, one of the most interesting uh, developments in the last couple of years has been the rapid expansion of our overseas uh, activity. And that's uh, really because uh, American craft beer is becoming really popular around the world. <laughs> right. And, uh, and and a lot of it is hoppy forward beers. And, you know. Stone opening in Germany. I mean, look at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 but it's also uh, local brewers adapting or adopting. And so, you know, pers- you know, 
And this is something that not is always captured by uh, some of the statistics coming out of the United States. Uh, our fastest growing market for hops right now is the UK, percentage wise. You know, in the the original home of the IPA, and yeah. it's flipped back, and now it's coming back, and it's these big, bold, you know, American <laughs> West Coast IPAs, or even some of the haze and, and whatnot. But it's it's really kind of um, taking on a, a huge uh, um, a growth in in, in beer um, supply demand, and not just the UK, but Scandinavia. And one interesting thing, for example, in Scandinavia, as a home brewer, you might appreciate this. The liquor taxes uh, are so high in some of those Scandinavian countries that it's a heck of a lot cheaper if they do their home brewing because they can bring <laughs> in the ingredients. Right. And so they have really big parties of home brewers because then they can make it and, and produce it a lot cheaper, more cheaply. But it also is that little bit cooler climate. It fits well, all tied into the foodie culture. And it's not just Europe and Scandinavia. We see it in Japan. We see it in Vietnam. And we see it in China, all over the world. And so we're now... Uh, whereas, you know, five years ago, we might have been 20%, maybe, Steve, of our hops were sold overseas. Mm-hmm. We're, we're over 30% this last wow. year. Wow. And, and that's pretty exciting for yeah. us. To, and, and it's because we love beer and we love to see that. But just to see what's going on around the world. And it's really become an, an, one of those American exports along with, like, Hollywood movies or whatever, or mov- <laughs> music or whatever, that's kind of part of the culture. And so people are drinking craft beer and they want to go into a bar in shanghai or they want to go into a bar in stockholm or wherever it is and having that beer is kind of cool right wow. and had and trying that that's pretty exciting for us i i would add two things to that as a segue um i think people who enjoy craft beer especially the millennials the younger generation i'm looking at alex while i'm saying this uh, <laughs> is uh, they want to hear the story behind the beer. Right. And they want to know who the growers are right. and, and where they're growing, whether it's the barley or the hops. And I think that offers us a wonderful opportunity to figure out how to tell that story a little bit better and get that to consumers. And then the other thing that excites me is, and now that I'm focused on the supply chain is, and now that we've got the resources to really bring in a high-powered technical solutions team with Nick Ziegler and, and mm-hmm. his colleagues in that group, I think we can finally get to the point where we can get back to the farms and be adjusting the growing practices to really grow the hops specifically for certain customers, knowing what they want in terms of alpha acids, beta acids, oil content. Wow. So to be able to make that connection, which is very much aligned with our mission statement, back to the grower, to knowing what our customers want and growing it to that specification so they can make better beer, that's an exciting thing that I think we'll see in the next couple of years as well. Boy, that that is really a mind-blowing concept for brewers to be able to get their hops tailored to their needs. Exactly. Yep. You know, that's that's really nice. Uh, last question. Uh, are we going to see more varieties of cryo hops coming up? We've got, uh, what is it, 10 right now? Eight oh, or 10? We've got 10, and, and I think what we tell customers, if they want us to make a cryo hop, we've got what a we're minimum. we're finding, you know, you were at the, the presentation today mm-hmm. earlier by Nick uh, Nick and Blaze, our two guys that really are the, the guys that really can talk about mm-hmm. this. Uh, what we're finding, uh, kind of what we talked about in uh, in our, our, beer po- our baseball podcast, uh, 
if you're, if we're making cryo products, we're finding out that it's almost like a different product. Mm-hmm. So a mosaic cryo is different than a mosaic T90, and a and a, and the Equinot mosaic Equinot is different than an Equinot T90. And and so what we're finding is as we're fractionating and and we're we're splitting off the lupulin from the the debittered leaf that. Um, uh, they're coming up with some unique profiles. And so those uh, hops, which sometimes may have a little bit more vegetative component to it, that whether that's the, the green onion or the bell pepper or whatever, if you strip some of that off, you end up with a more interesting aroma profile if you're looking for something a little bit juicier, for right. lack of a better term. Right. Um, and so to Steve's point, we, we now are contemplating some things that maybe weren't really big sellers as T90s because they were too much of a of a, a specific aroma that might be really interesting if you start fractionating. And uh, so we, we're talking with our, our, our friends at uh, Roy Farms, for example, maybe looking at the Zaka. What oh, would wow. that look like, right? And so you need to have a certain volume to be able to do uh, some trial runs. But we're, we're very open to hearing about that. And Steve said, if somebody mm-hmm. wants to work with us on that, we're excited to try to play around and see what that might be because we're, we're just as, as excited by, uh, by this as the brewers are to figure out what might, <laughs> what might else come out of it. So. Denny, if you need 5,000 pans for your home brewing, we can uh, do just about whatever variety you want. Steve, I wish I had enough time to use 5,000 pans for home brewing. Um, Yeah, Drew and I have become very excited about the American Nobles. That is such a unique product. Uh, He's a a real Saison kind of guy, Mm -hmm. and he's finding those uh, just remarkable in his Saisons. And I've spent the last two or three years trying to develop a a recipe for an American mild, kind Mm. of with the the qualities of a British, but using all American ingredients. Right, sure. Uh, and I had I'd been using mecha grade malt and and my yeast, of mm-hmm, course, mm-hmm. Uh, but I was having trouble with the hops because I was just getting no matter what I did, it was too much. Right. And I got some of those American Nobles, and boom! Suddenly Voila, that yeah. beer works. That's very cool. cool. You know which yeah. which what did you use a single um, uh, variety no, or did I you used, use a blend? I used several. I used Simcoe. I'd have to look at the recipe, which I don't have with me. But I, I know I, I used Simcoe and Laurel, and there might have been some Mosaic in there also. I know again, Nick and Tom, Nick and Tommy, and, and Blaze have talked about the Cascade American Noble. Is oh. one of the more interesting ones. Wow! So to get away from what was thought of as kind of a uh, you know a, 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 you know the, the pale ale uh, tradition is to this is pretty interesting to try. So uh, I'll have to hit Brian up for some samples. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Well, I have been talking to Mike Gettle and Steve Carpenter from Yakima Chief Hops. Guys, thank you so much for taking part of your day to talk to us. Uh, I know that the people out there are going to find this as fascinating as I did, and. Uh, Thanks for doing what you do and letting us in on it. It's our pleasure, Danny. Danny. Uh, Real pleasure. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks. So I hope you guys really appreciate the fact that uh, Yakima Chief is owned by the families who grow those hops. It's it's a family-owned business. Uh, It's not just some big anonymous corporation. And that's the thing that, to me, makes it really, really special. Yep. Uh, Farmers Collective is protecting the product to make sure that we all have good things to use. Yeah, really, really, man. Well, so now, Denny, of course, it's not just all about, you know, going to the hop fields. It's also about learning. So tell us, oh, Dincenzo, (laughs) Mr. Wise One, what did you learn? Let me just go through uh, some like like your average day here. Um, You know, 
We got uh, a keynote address, first of all, by Garrett Marrero of Maui Brewing. And man, this guy rocks. He has built a brewery from nothing to huge over the course of just a few years. Uh, they have a, a really large brewery there. You may have seen Maui Brewing beers here on the mainland. And one thing that Garrett kept saying was that he's a business guy, not not a brewer, right? He likes beer, but he's never brewed. His whole thing was he wanted to start a business making beer and other beverages using indigenous Hawaiian products. So it's important to remember that it's a, he considers it a business first, and he's getting into all kinds of things besides beer. They make cider, wine. They're into distilling. They make canned cocktails, right? This guy is not one of your beer purists who looks down on all this other stuff. He's a businessman that looks at all this as a way to support his business and uh, and make it even bigger and better. One of the cool things that they've done with the new brewery that they have just built is gone heavily into sustainable energy, kind of like uh, like Sierra Nevada has done, and they're on at least as big a scale. Uh, they actually consider the grid as a tertiary backup power source after their solar panels and biodiesel generators. CO2 in Hawaii is about six times as expensive as, as it is other places. So in order to carbonate their beer, they recapture 86% of the CO2 that they produce and use that for their beer. And the other thing that he kept making a point of and that I had a great conversation with him about was that it's important to change with the times, including recipes. You know, and I asked him my old standard thing about, well, if people like that recipe, why don't you just introduce a new recipe for the changes so that those of us who like uh, you know, the, the old version can keep getting that? And he made a, a real good case for why it's important to just keep evolving those original recipes. And, you know, in the end, it was like, okay, dude, I'm going with you because, uh, you know, you, you have given me such a good explanation that I'm willing to uh, rethink the way that I think. Well, brands have value. So, I mean, if you've, if you've invested a lot of time in a particular name and, and recognition, if you're just tweaking and, and making changes over time, it makes perfect sense to me. Right. Exactly. And you can, you know, uh, and you can only have so many SKUs out on the market. Well, and that's, and that's was really his point. You know, uh, from my point of view, I would rather see that old recipe there so I can go get it when I want it with no changes. But like you said, you can't keep introducing an infinite number of beers into the market. There was a lot of great info on the whole hop supply chain, uh, coming from Jason Peralt, uh, one of the family growers, uh, Steve Carpenter and uh, Ryan Hopkins, who does hop contracting for uh, Yakima Chief. Uh, one of the interesting facts was that half of the hops they sell, and I believe that they go through 36 million pounds of hops a year is what they said. And uh, you guys at Yakima Chief, if I'm wrong on any of this, please uh, email me and correct me. But Ryan said that half of those hops come from the 10 or 11 families that are the owners of Yakima Chief, and the other half come from 41 or 42 other hop-growing families in the area that they contract to grow hops for them. 
three of these families formed a uh, company called Yakima Chief Ranches, and that's the company that pretty much handles hop breeding, quality control, and they make decisions for all of the growers about what temperature to dry the hops at, when to start twining the hops. Uh, I had a chance to go to the uh, Zimmerman Research Facility there, which is where they breed new hops. Fascinating place. Had one field of uh, male hops that was like really isolated and kind of cordoned off from all the other hops. And they go and collect pollen from that and then go out and uh, pollinate some of the females that they have there to see what they come up with. It makes me wonder just what would happen if, uh, I don't know, you had a really bad wind shift one day. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know what? I mean, there there are like fences and and you know cloths and stuff over these hops. There was nothing over the top, I have to admit. But uh, you know, the male hops were pretty well cordoned off. This year, Citra will have the most acres grown in North America. It has taken over from Cascade as being the most widely grown hop. Uh, a lot more aroma hops are entering the market, and we've all seen that, because that's what the brewers contract for, and the growers only grow what they have a contract for. They don't grow hops and go, hey, guys, try this. Uh, you know, that just that just doesn't work. They can only afford to grow what they know they're going to be able to sell. And I did see a lot of cascade fields that are being torn out and uh, will be put into something else, because they just can't get a good price for cascades anymore. Generally, you know, and hops don't all get harvested at the same time. Different varieties ripen and are ready for harvest at different times. Generally, it's pretty much always Centennial or the first ones harvested. And Cascade, Simcoe, Citra, Mosaic. And I guess that that alters slightly depending on reality. Um, something that I thought was absolutely fascinating uh, is that Unlike what you normally hear about hops taking two or three years to come into production and be ready to harvest, there in the Yakima Valley, because of the soil and weather conditions, they can plant a hop crop in November and be ready to harvest it the next, uh, the next August, uh, you know, at the end of August the next year. So not even a year until they get plants that are in pretty much full production. Uh, in November is when they make the decisions about what and how much to plant. March and April, they do the planting, and it's pretty much too late to contract for hops at that point because, you know, the hops that have been contracted for are in the ground. April and May, they do the burn back and twining. Uh, burn back is a process that they use to kind of like even out the growth uh, of the various hop plants so that they can twine them all at the same time and not have to keep going back over and over again. And that kind of goes on through June. The twining goes on through June. Uh, June and August, they say, well, there's not really a lot happening. And then in August and September, it's the hop harvest. And that's when things really start, excuse me, hopping. Uh, they are pretty much going around the clock for two to four weeks, uh, during the hop harvest. Uh, they, uh, the other thing that I think we've even talked about before with them is that, uh, they blend lots of hops from the various fields to kind of even out any differences before they go to pelletizing. We got some great info on both cryo hops and American nobles from uh, Nick Ziegler, Blaze Root, and uh, Tommy Ancone, their uh, their brewer there at Yakima Chief, that 
if we're lucky, Drew and I will have a chance to go up and brew with him one of these days. Wouldn't that be fun? It would be. They have this very cool little one-barrel brewing system and eight of the coolest, shiniest little one-barrel fermenters that I have ever seen. I mean, they are just beyond description. Uh, I would have gotten some pictures, but the brewery is under construction, and you couldn't really see it very well anyway. So the cryo hops, they talked about, you know, that the uh, desired hop characteristics include bitterness, astringency, polyphenol character, aromatic character, you know, like floral, fruity, herbal, whatever. Um, and obviously, when you use cryo hops, you don't get a lot of that uh, polyphenolic character. Uh, all hops, they, this is a point they made over and over again, all hops are dual purpose. There is no such thing as a bittering hop or an aroma hop. It's just whatever you want to use them for. Uh, the uh, lupulin-based portion, which is the cryo hops, provide bittering and really, really intense aromatics. And the, the bract portion, which becomes the American nobles, provide the polyphenols and the really subtle aromatics you get from the oxygenated terpenes that give you the grassy, herbal, spicy, woody notes. One thing that is real interesting that I've discovered from playing around with the cryo hops, and I don't know if you have or not, is that the cryo hops are almost too clean, you know? The, the aroma and, and flavor characteristics they give you, you know, you can load those up and just get tons and tons of them. But you may not get the same big slap that you do when you're using like T90s or something like that. So one of the areas that I've been getting into and a lot of people who use these products have been getting into is exploring the relationship and ratios of use between, say, the cryo hops and the, the polyphenol portions, the, uh, the, the American nobles or even T90s and how to use the, the T90s or American nobles in conjunction with the cryo hops so that you can balance the polyphenol character to not get too much of it, to, to not get the tannic astringent portions of it, but to help carry the flavor from the cryo hops. And to me, this is a, a really exciting area of experimentation that I am much more interested in than experimenting with kind of, what kind of unusual flavors and ingredients I can get into my beer. Well, and to me, I think the idea of blending back some of the nobles to the polyphenols, which is something that, that we talked about at HomebrewCon. Right. It's interesting, and I think that also plays into part of the reason why a lot of the feedback I've seen from people about using cryo is to still blend them with T90s, right? They're kind of like – a lot of people are kind of using them almost as like a T90 turbo boost. Yeah, and and that's a really good way to look at it, you know? Um, so cryo hops are great on their own. They maybe can be made greater by using them with a little bit of American Noble or a little bit of T90 pellets. Now, and one point they made about the T90 pellets is that pellets these days are softer and easier to dissolve than they have been in the past. I don't know if you've noticed that, uh, but pellets are not nearly as hard as they used to be. And that's because so many people are doing so much late hopping these days that they need those pellets to be uh, easier to break down when they're like in the fermenter. Yeah, that makes uh, sense because I, I I remember seeing a lot of pellets and like when I first started brewing, it was like the soft pellets were like, oh, that's a sign of questionable quality. And like the, the good pellets were the ones that were super hard. And yeah. and yeah, I've been seeing more and more squishy pellets recently. 
Right. And one thing, one thing that I, I learned there is that you can tell the quality of a pellet by looking at the exterior. If it's got a real shiny exterior, that pellet was likely extruded through a press that had a lot of heat on it. And that is going to really reduce the hop aromatics. Yakima Chief has a proprietary process where their pellet mills are cooled with liquid nitrogen. And if you look at the pellets coming out of them, they have like more of a dull surface. And that's uh, an indicator that these pellets were processed cold and uh, will retain a lot more of their oils. So in other words, you can judge a hop by its cover. (laughs) Oh, that's very, very good. Uh, we got to go out to the processing plant where they uh, make the CO2 extract and the hop pellets. Uh, the CO2 extract uh, is very, very fascinating. Uh, it contains the alpha, beta, and oils. Primarily, it's used for bitterness, but there are single varietals that can be used for late kettle additions or, or whirlpools for flavor and aroma. Uh, you can't dry hop with extract naturally because it just won't dissolve. Uh, there are hexa, tetra, and rho extracts that increase foam formation and stability. They've got an iso extract that is pure resin for bittering. They were talking about how you can actually, if you get a hold of some hop extract as a home brewer, you can freeze it. And it becomes what they were calling a squishy solid. So you can actually pull a little bit out of that frozen container of hop extract because it won't freeze solid and use that in your beer. A lot of people I know shy away from hop extract because it's like, oh, my God, where am I going to use this whole container? Uh, tell you the truth, I had a container a couple of years ago I gave away because I didn't know this trick. So if you're into hop extract, uh, you know, you can buy larger amounts, keep it in the freezer, pull out what you need. And one of the more exciting things that uh, Yakima Chief said was that they are really going to be working on the hop extract for homebrewer market this year. Yay. But again, warning out there, whatever you do, if you have access to hop extract, don't be a dummy. Don't try and taste it directly. <laughs> you know what? This is the, like I said, this is the fifth time I've been there, and this is the first year when we went through the extract plant that nobody actually stuck their finger in the extract and tried to taste it. Uh, and you can always tell the guy who does that because he's the guy going around gagging and spitting for the next hour. I was going to say, the one time I did, I don't think I could taste anything for at least a day. <laughs> yeah, really. And the, the other thing that we got into that was really interesting and different was the use of hops and distilling. Uh, Bryce Parsons was there from Last Best Brewing and Distilling in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And he had brought along several examples of hop gin that he had made. And oh my God. Yeah, stop. You're making me jealous. Oh, (laughs) they were so good. Um, just, you know, and he had used various different botanicals and different hops in each of three, did a brilliant job of explaining what the botanicals brought to it, why you would use different ones for different flavors and stuff like that. And even better, uh, Annie Johnson was there and Annie had brought along some hop gin she had made on her Pico still. And I'm sure she did it out of the country where it was legal, right? Cause she would never do that here in the U S exactly. Uh, but she had some uh, gin she had made using galaxy hops. And let me tell you, you took a sniff of this stuff, 
and it was just like pure tangerine flavor coming up into your nose. Uh, and Bryce was able to really give her some good tips about how to take that to the next level when she leaves the country and distills it again. As always, remember to leave the country whenever you're going to do something funny. <laughs> that's, that's right. So anyway, that, that is just a not so brief rundown of what goes on at Hop and Brew School. Uh, there will be another one next year, and we have some big plans for getting together with Yakima Chief and doing some really special stuff at Hop and Brew School. So uh, save the last week of August on your calendar next year and plan on heading to Yakima. It's a great event. Uh, you pay 195 bucks. Uh, you pay your transportation, your hotel room. You get all the classes. They cover the food for you. And you get to go to the sports center in the evening. Which, and I suspect there's more beer than you can shake a pint at. Uh, yeah, there are, there are just tubs and tubs of beer. The commercial brewers who are there for the first session bring all kinds of beer in. And uh, we have it left for us. There are beers that uh, Yakima Chief has brewed, that other breweries in the area have brewed and donated. Um, you know, there's, there's all the beer there you could possibly want and a lot of knowledge and a lot of fun. I love watching people come to this for the first time and just watching their jaws drop when you go out to a, a hop farm and, and watch the picker in action or something like that. Yep. Watch it cutting the tops. Don't forget, uh, boys and girls, you know, there's going to be lots of new hop news coming out and we're going to be trying to do our best to keep you abreast of it. And now. Well, now it's time to go answer some questions. Yep. We're going to go answer questions. We're going to wrap the show up with a quick tip and something other, and we'll be back in a minute to do that. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops, formerly known as YCH Hops, is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest, with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is thrilled about the release of their new innovative product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased brew house yield. Visit yakimachief.com to learn more. Thanks for sticking around. We are ready to get out of here and get you on your way. But before we do that, we got a few questions to answer. Uh, do you want to do the first one, Drew? Sure. Our first question comes from Danny Bland from Australia. Hey, Danny, we're going to be visiting you soon. Hope that you're going to be at the conference. And his question is, 
In Australia, we are in a drought. One of the things that we do in Australia to save H2O is a thing called hot cubing. The word is chilled by putting it into an airtight 20 to 25 liter plastic cube overnight and then pitched into the fermenter the next day with your yeast. So do you know much about this method and what is your opinion? So Danny, yeah, we do know something about the method. You know, the no chill method as most people refer to it online. And I've never done it in the plastic cube variant that uh, you mentioned, and it seems to be very popular in Australia because I don't have a 20 to 25 liter plastic cube. But I have done things in the past where I've put wort into, say, a cuddle overnight and let it chill. And as long as I was doing something that wasn't, you know, like all about the super bright hoppy flavors, I felt like it worked just fine. But my one caveat with saying that is, as with most other things, you know, when you're taking shortcuts, you better be airtight on everything else that you're doing. So there's a real temptation sometimes, I think, with some of these methods where we're cutting out certain parts of the process, like, say, forced chilling. And, you know, you kind of get sloppy in other parts where, you know, maybe you don't sanitize the valves correctly or you, you, you're not as on top of it about your racking. So I think as long as you're good with your sanitation, and to my mind, not focus so much on getting a bright, clean, hoppy IPA, and I know there are people out there who do it, I just haven't had any success with it or feel like I've had any success with it, uh, I think no-chill is perfectly fine. I think I think no-chill is great in theory. I think that if I was going to be doing it in some sort of plastic jug, I would, number one, want to make sure that it is food safe at boiling temperature, because let's face it, you're going to be putting boiling wort in there, so... Uh, you know, you need to make sure that you're not going to be picking up any off flavors or something even worse. Uh, but, I, you know, I don't have any experience with it myself, but uh, I have confidence because I've heard so many people say that it works great. So uh, maybe when we're in Australia, somebody will bring us a beer that uh, was made like that so we can check it out. Huh? Yep, indeed. And don't forget that, uh, you know, even if your plastic isn't food safe, there's nothing wrong with growing a third eye. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, the next one comes from Patrick Smith, and he says, I just want to start off with a big thank you for all you guys do. I also want to thank Denny for giving me an autographed Y Yeast koozie at HomebrewCon. Oh, yeah, man, that's got to be one of the silliest things I've ever done. <laughs> I didn't know it was signed by the both of you until I opened the bulging package of swag I shipped home to myself in New Jersey. And now it's a prized possession. That's right, yeah. You and about 200 other people are the only ones that have those. My question is about adding fruit to beer. I know this topic has been talked about a lot. I'm always afraid of continued fermentation and drying out the beer. What are some best practices with the best, most flavorful results? What are the easiest fruits to add? How and when do I add them? Which styles are best suited for these fruits? Also, I purchased a whipping siphon based on Drew's tincture method, but have yet to use it. I have a hazy IPA that's been split from the larger batch that I'm willing to sacrifice, you know, for science. I've got a lot of that free citra from YCH, and it tastes amazing. Thanks, YCH. I'm sure they're saying you're very welcome. And call us Yakima Chief. That's right. Yeah, well, it was YCH at the time. So, <laughs> Okay, so let's go back here. Uh, what are some of the best practices... And with the most flavorful results to add fruit to beer without drawing it out. Okay. I would say, number one, look at your recipe if you're concerned about drying it out. If you think that the fruit is going to uh, 
promote continued fermentation and possibly dry out the beer, take steps to prevent that in your recipe. Maybe add a little crystal malt, you know, maybe some lactose, you know. Oats. Um, oats. oats. Oats are always the answer. Yep, yep. Drew Drew is a big oat fan. So, you know, think about think about preventative recipe design to uh, to try and head it off before you actually do it. What are some of the easiest fruits to add? Boy, I would say that the I would go with the opposite. Which, what are some of the hardest ones to add? I would say peaches because they're kind of difficult to uh, to pit. Uh, in general, if I'm going to add any kind of fruit or veggie or anything else in, like that to a beer, I like to uh, vacuum seal it and freeze it first. Not because that will uh, kill any baddies on it and prevent contamination, but because the vacuum sealing and freezing will help break down the cell walls when you thaw it back out and get it ready to put it into your beer, and you will be able to extract the most flavor from whatever fruit you use like that. Uh, I can tell you that uh, watermelon is notoriously difficult to use. You have to use a uh, a lot of watermelon to get any flavor to come through. And then it mostly tastes like jalapeno. Yeah, right. Uh, blueberries are also notoriously difficult to use. Uh, while most fruits, uh, kind of the rule of thumb is about a pound per gallon. Blueberries, you could easily double that if you really, really want to get a decent blueberry character in. And don't forget uh, strawberries. Dep- yeah. Strawberries, uh, strawberries are almost like, you know, put all the strawberries you can ever find anywhere in the universe into a beer and then drink it within three days. Right. And in that case, I know that a lot of people don't want to hear this, but you might be better off going out and finding a, a good uh, strawberry extract. I, I know that you like the extracts from Olive Nation, right? Yep. So, you know, think about the beer thing. You know, don't try to necessarily be a purist. Supplement that fruit with some extract if you can find a good extract. How and when to add them? In secondary, after primary fermentation, this is one of the few times you're going to want to use a secondary, uh, put your fruit in there, rack the beer on top of it, wait for it to finish. Which styles are best suited to these fruits? You know, again, say with blueberries, I put blueberries in a Hefeweizen and I've put them in a porter. Work great in both, but it took about three times as much blueberries in the porter as it did in the Hefeweizen because the beer had so much more character and flavor on its own so take that into account when you're thinking about how much to use any fruit tips puree puree there is absolutely there's absolutely nothing wrong with using a good quality puree like the ones from our sponsor brewcraft usa (laughs) um no but seriously fruit purees work well i always do the frozen thing uh stone fruits are notoriously difficult i'm not really a huge fruit and dark beer fan but that's me uh, I tend to, uh, but I also tend to play around a lot more with pale beers anyway. Yeah, you know, my my experiment with blueberries in the porter was just one of those things, just to see what would happen, and and it made a good beer. But again, I I think I used maybe like about a pound and a half, two pounds per gallon, and you could just barely tell that they were there. Yep. So. And the other thing I will also suggest to people is go to your local farmers market towards the end of the day. Wait until all the growers are starting to pack up, because then you can usually get flats of fruit for. Relatively cheap. Boy, and that is a great, great tip because that way you're also supporting your local yep. farmers. Support local, eat local, drink local, whatever, local everything. <laughs> and speaking of tips, it's time for our quick tip. And you've got that today. And our quick tip actually comes from the last episode of The Brew Files. I know we've mentioned this pastry stout thing a couple times in the episode, and we even actually kind of hinted around it with the pump. 
And this came from Mike. He got this actually from a couple of professional breweries, particularly from Andrew Bell at the brewery, when he wanted to add the adjuncts to his pastry stouts, so the cinnamon, the pecans, the vanilla, and speed up their extraction so that he wasn't waiting for a long period of time. He took a cue from Andrew and actually set up a pump to recirculate the beer, the finished beer, this fermented beer, set up a diaphragm pump to circulate the fermented beer through the fermenter over and over and over again for two days. So they had a constant cycle going. And what he did was he took one hose, the input hose, put it down below the surface because, well, naturally you're going to have to if you want to draw liquid into it, and then put the other hose down below the surface of the liquid as well so that there was no like real you know air gap in there. And both of the hoses went through the lid of his fermenter and with a little gasket so that they stayed nice and airtight. And then, yeah, he just plugged it in and let it run for a couple of days. And two days, and this beer that we had at the sandwich, a couple months old, still had all of this amazing cinnamon and vanilla character. And the pecans were there, but they were kind of like a backgroundy type note. So really interesting technique. I haven't played around with it, but I learned it from this episode. And I think I'm going to have to figure out a reason to give it a try. Yeah, you know, this topic actually came up at Hop and Brew School. Uh, Charlie Johnson and Trevor Rogers, I believe, from The Guard. Uh, we're giving a talk about uh, using hops in sour beers, and they do something similar to this. And so the question came up, you know, can you do this as a home brewer if you don't have a peristaltic or diaphragm pump? And the general consensus was, yeah, you can probably do this with your March pump and a corny. You're going to want to uh, extend the gas in dip tube down to below the liquid level so you don't splash. You're going to want to obviously purge your corny with CO2. And, and again, remember, this is theoretical, but it seems like it ought to work. So if anybody out there is crazy enough to try it, let us know. Yeah. So new tip, old show. Or new show. I don't know. <laughs> See, even an old dog like Denny and I can learn new tricks. And so I want to give this a shot because it sounds funny to me. <laughs> it, it sounds interesting. I, I'd like to try it with dry hopping, too. So I may, I may get around to that eventually. There you go. And, and do it with cryo so that you, you, know, you get double pump. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. And you've got the something other this week also, huh? Yeah, Squirrel I, Girl? Not just Squirrel Girl. The unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Oh, man. Even better. Yeah, which is a comic uh, from Marvel that started in 2015, at least the particular run I'm talking about. Squirrel Girl has been around the Marvel Universe since the early 90s. And kind of a, it started off as a little bit of a joke character, you know, not quite a mutant. So, uh, But her tagline is, all the powers of a squirrel and of a girl. And in the course of the comic book history, she's defeated just about every big bad Marvel villain and a lot of the Marvel heroes. Uh, you know, including Galactus and Doctor Doom and, and everybody, Doctor Octopus a couple of times. And all of it is, you know, sort of this girl who has a giant squirrel tail and the ability to talk to squirrels and just sort of this effervescence and sort of can do never say die attitude, but without a lot of actual violence to the, to the whole thing. It's a really fun, lighthearted read a lot of kind of that you know friendship is magic type of attitude in there a lot of like how to solve problems and of course in her daytime uh, squirrel girl is actually doreen green a lowly computer science student and uh, you know at a new york university so, i no wonder it appeals to you oh yeah no, hey, it, it, it is fantastic forget the super villains man i want to be able to talk to squirrels that's cool yeah exactly it, it, it is it is endlessly amusing, including things where she somehow convinces Craven the Hunter to become a good guy and only hunt bad guys. It's oh, amazing. Alrighty. 
All righty. That sounds great, man. Uh, and so, it's, by the way, it is available on Comixology, you know, Amazon's uh, comic digital comics distribution house. Uh, the first big seven graphic novels of it, collected issues, are all available on the Comixology Unlimited, so you can read them for free. <laughs> cool, man. I, I think I have to check that out. So I guess that's about it for today, huh? I think so. All right. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com, which is now back up and functional again after being attacked by Chinese baddies. Mm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and all the new cool social media platforms out there that Drew can figure out how to use. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And remember, you can always leave us a voicemail or even a text at 626-765-1-ALE. And we hope that we're going to see you in Australia or Asheville or Dallas coming up in October and March. But until then, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.